This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Amen. Well, before we get into God's Word this morning, um, we want to remember that tomorrow is Memorial Day, and as we gather this morning uh, as believers for worship, we, we, we do so in, in freedom, but we also need to remember that freedom is not free, that there are many who have paid the ultimate price uh, with their lives, laid down uh, their lives for our, our nation, our freedom, our way of life. And so we, we remember them uh, t- tomorrow and, and we want to um, remember them now. And, and also just those that serve uh, in our military that are putting their, their lives in, in harm's way uh, for us, uh, their, their families that are going through all, all that it means to have a loved one who's serving in the military, the long and frequent deployments and things like that. It's a, it's a family project serving uh, together in the military. But I, I want to ask, uh, before we pray, I want to ask all of our active duty and, and veterans, if you all would just stand, we want to we recognize you right now, all of our active duty and veterans um, of, the, of the military branches. Thank you. Thank you for your service. Let's pray. Father, we do uh, want to remember today uh, those that have, have laid down their lives for the freedom that we enjoy just to gather here and worship. That is not the case uh, in so many uh, parts of the world where b- believers uh, cannot uh, gather openly. Um, but Lord, we thank you for the freedom that we enjoy here. We are mindful of the ultimate sacrifice that has been paid by so many throughout our history to preserve that and, and protect that. Uh, Lord, we, we thank you for uh, their sacrifice on our behalf. We pray for uh, their families today. We, we pray for all of those who have, have served or serving uh, in our military, putting their lives on the line uh, for, uh, for, for all of us. Uh, Lord, we, may they just know uh, how much they are appreciated for their, their service. Lord, as we think about freedom, uh, we're also aware that it is ultimately uh, only in Christ that we, we find that, that ultimate freedom that, that truly, truly uh, sets us free from within. And so, Lord, as we prepare to dig into your word right now, we, we pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to us, open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word and more and more of the beauty of Jesus, our Savior. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. So if you are new here today, we are in the midst of a series from the Gospel of Luke called Tell Me the Story of Jesus. And what we're doing in the series is looking at parts of Luke's Gospel. We're walking through Luke and we're especially focused on on passages that are unique to the Gospel of Luke, that are not found in the other three Gospels. And we're going to look at another one of those parts uh, today. It's a parable. It's in Luke chapter 18 and verses 9 through 14. And we're talking today about the only way to be right with God. Luke chapter 18 
And let's look at verses 9 through 14. If you would find that in your copy of God's Word, Luke 18, and we will begin reading in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other, because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. After talking with missionaries from around the world that are working with people from from every major religion, after doing quite a bit of traveling uh, myself and kind of uh, observing things, I'm struck more and more by how utterly different Christianity is from Every other religion in the world, every other religion in the world is spelled D-O. It's about what people try to do to make themselves acceptable before God and, and just hope that they've done enough in the end. Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. It's about what Christ has done in dying for sinners on the cross that we might be forgiven, in rising from the dead that we might have eternal life. In other words, every other religion in the world is about human achievement, which leads to human pride. Christianity is about God's accomplishment in Christ, which leads to humility, if we truly understand it. Now, Jesus brings all of this to a fine point in this classic little parable in Luke 18. Isn't Jesus amazing? He can say so much, so succinctly, and so clearly. So what do we, what do we see here? in this this parable. First of all, let's look at the context of it. And we see the context here uh, in verse nine. It says that he, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. We don't have to wonder who Jesus is addressing in this parable. He is addressing self-righteous people who view themselves as morally superior to others and who look down on others. And before you say, well, that's not me, stop. That's all of us. All too often. And the reason for that is that pride is built into our sinful DNA. 
Pride is part of, of who we are as sinners. Melissa and I celebrated 31 years of uh, marriage this week. It's hard to believe we've had two girls uh, recently graduating from college, but I remember when the kids were small and we would take them to the play area at the mall we would, and we would go into an arcade and one of the fun games that, that I would play with them was called Whack-A-Mole. <laughs> and you, you get your, there's all these little things that just keep popping up and when they pop up, they light up and you've got like a play mallet and when the little mole pops up and, and lights up, you, you have to, you have to you know, hit it with the mallet, and as the game goes along, they're popping up all over the place, they're popping up at, at the same time, and you're just trying to whack them as soon as they pop up. That's the way it is, it has to be, with our battle with pride. Because when we think that we've beaten pride in one area, it, 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 it rears its ugly head in another area, we will never be done battling pride until we get to glory. And so you can dispense with the idea that you are not in this parable. We are all in this parable, and not just as the penitent tax collector. All too often, we have prayed, played the role of the, the prideful Pharisee. Now, if you look again at verse 9, it says he, he told this parable to, to, to some, and, the, and the, the word there really means whoever the ones, <laughs> whoever the ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Whoever the ones, that, that's, that's been all of us at different points in our lives. We have manifested this, this pride. What does he say about, about the people that he's addressing, addressing here? First of all, Jesus says they, that who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. People who are trusting in their own righteousness, who are are confident and relying on their own righteousness, who view themselves as morally superior. Now, that is not something that is limited to religious people. If you go on social media, you will see some people who are very irreligious, but who definitely think of themselves as morally superior. In fact, many of them are anti-religion, but they are making strong moral assertions, very, very self-righteous assertions, very confident in their own righteousness and their moral superiority. But the context here is that he is talking about religious people, and we should know better. The Pharisees should have known better. Because in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 64, 6, it says there that our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to the righteousness of God. And in Romans chapter 3, when when the apostle Paul just indicts the entire human race and, and lays us bare and just exposes our sin, he concludes there by saying that we are all, every human being is under sin. And then he says in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Suppose all of us were to gather in the sanctuary this morning down here on the lower level, and we were to all gather together, and we were to test our vertical leaps. Now, some of us would jump higher than others, but I can assure you, if we all were down here on the lower level and we all practiced our jumping we would all fall pitifully short of the ceiling of the sanctuary. Michael Jordan in his prime 
would fall extremely short of this ceiling. We fall pitifully short of the glory, of the righteousness of God. And so therefore, how foolish to trust in our own righteousness to make ourselves right with God. The second thing Jesus says here is that these people look down on everyone else. Now, trusting in your own righteousness and looking down on everyone else, that, that's, that comes usually as a package deal. It's a package deal you don't want. Looking down on everyone else. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't call sin, sin. We have to do that. Here's the problem, though. We're super good at spotting the sins of others and really lousy at spotting our own sins. Now, Jesus says something incredibly funny about this in Matthew 7 and verses 3 and 4. Jesus says there, why do you look at the splinter in your brother's eye, but don't notice the beam of wood in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the splinter out of your eye, and look, there's a beam of wood in your own eye. <laughs> you see, Jesus says we're, we're, we're splendid splinter spotters. <laughs> we're really gifted at spotting the sins of others and so, so good at, at overlooking, conveniently overlooking or justifying our own sins. Now let's look at the story that Jesus tells here in this parable. What do we see here? First of all, we see two people. Two people. We see them in verse 10. Look at it. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Some of you are old enough to remember the, the, uh, the, the comedy sitcom in the 1970s, The Odd Couple. <laughs> well, this is, this, is, uh, this is Felix Unger and Oscar Madison here the Pharisee and the tax collector. These guys are on opposite ends of the spectrum. Now, when we think about Pharisees, we, we've talked about this many times in the series, but it, it bears repeating. Because if you have been in church for any length of time, or if you have read the Gospels, you are conditioned to think of the Pharisees as the bad guys. And it's only natural that you would. Because when you read the four Gospels, the Pharisees, most of them are coming across as bitter opponents of Jesus. So it's natural that we would think of them as the bad guys. But the problem with that is that you can't really understand the passages about them without understanding how the Pharisees were viewed in first century Israel, where they were not viewed at all as the bad guys. In fact, the Pharisees enjoyed widespread support among the people. The Pharisees were viewed by most of the people as patriotic. They refused to kowtow to the Romans who were occupying their country. They were viewed as, as men who uh, sought to protect Jewish identity and to keep that from being destroyed. They were viewed as men who tr were trying to uphold the Old Testament, trying to uphold the law of God. And they enjoyed widespread support. They were very respected. The real bad guys in the first century, in the eyes of, of most people, were guys like this other guy, the tax collector. <laughs> this guy. Was, and, and they had earned their reputation. Because these guys, it was not simply that they collected legitimate taxes. That's not what made them despised. 
The tax collectors were Jews who had basically sold their souls for money. They were collecting taxes for the Roman government that was occupying Israel. They were not all legitimate uh, taxes. These guys were known for graft, for extortion, for shaking people down, for cheating people, right? It, they had earned their reputation as the bad guys. They were despised, and they were despised for a reason. So both of these guys go up to the temple at the same time to pray. <laughs> when people looked at the Pharisee in the temple, uh, they thought, you know, hey, this guy has got a hotline to heaven. They looked at the tax collector, they're like, what is this guy even doing here? Two people. And then we see two prayers. Two prayers in verses 11 through 13. Let's look at it. The Pharisee was standing and praying like this about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. First of all, let's look at the prayer of the Pharisee, which is not much of a prayer. <laughs> it's more of a speech about himself. When you think about the, the elements of prayer, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication, you don't see any adoration of God in the Pharisee's prayer. There's no praise of God here. When you look at his prayer, there is certainly no confession of sin or even any self-awareness of his own sin. No confession. There is a thanksgiving. He thanks God for what a great guy is. That's the prayer. God, thank you for making me such a great guy. I thank you that I'm such a great guy. And there's really no supplication here. He's not really asking God for anything. He thinks God owes him everything. Notice the lists in his prayer. He gives, he gives two lists. Verse 11 He's given a list of all the bad things that he is not. Verse 11, he says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Greedy. Now that word could also be translated as robbers, swindlers, extortionists, cheaters. Who'd, who did that describe? <laughs> the guy that he's looking at out of the corner of his eye. The tax collector. And then he says, God, I thank you that I'm not unrighteous. You could also translate that word as crooked or unjust again. <laughs> this is a description of a tax collector. Adulterers, you know, people like tax collectors that were so um, impious, were known for being sexually loose as well. And so he gives this list of all of these, all of these bad things that he has avoided. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people and I'm not like this one, this tax collector. <clears throat> and then, in verse 12, he mentions a couple of things that he does. He says in verse 12, I, I fast twice a week, I give a tenth of everything I get. Now, the tithing 
was biblical. That was required of even the poorest Israelite in the Old Testament. But fasting was something that was only required one day a year on the Day of Atonement. He's doing it twice a week. And so listen, this guy is thinking to himself, surely I am one of God's favorites. Notice a few things about his list. First of all, they're based on comparisons, but comparisons to what? To other people. God, I thank you I'm not like other people, not like this tax collector. They're, they're, they're comparisons with other people. Second, they're all externals. They're all things that blocks that he can check off. Notice what you do not see him saying here. You do not hear him saying, God, I thank you that I'm becoming a more loving person. God, I thank you that I'm becoming a more joyous person, that more and more I'm finding my joy in you. God, I thank you that I'm becoming more and more of a peaceful person within and in relationships. God, I thank you that I'm becoming a more, you're making me a a more patient person. God, I thank you that I'm becoming more kind, more gentle. But what does Galatians 5 tell us that the fruit of the Spirit is? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. In Christianity, the Holy Spirit is transforming our character from the inside out. You see none of that in his list. What you do see is a total blindness to his own sin, his own need for grace, his own need for mercy, You see, zero self-awareness of his own sin. He's blind to it. In fact, he thinks that God owes him heaven. We looked at a quote by Trevin Wax a couple of weeks ago that bears repeating. Hell is full of people who think they deserve heaven. Heaven is full of people who know they deserve hell. Let's look at the tax collector's prayer In verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even raise his eyes to heaven, but kept striking his chest and saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. First of all, notice that he was standing far off. The the temple complex had various courts from the outer to the inner. He's standing in an outer court far off because he feels himself to be far from God. But here's the irony. In his prayer, he's the one who is drawing near to God. It says here that as he prayed, that that he, he, he would not even raise his eyes to heaven. But again, here's the irony. It's his prayer that is going to reach heaven. And then it says that that as he prayed, that he kept striking his chest. (laughs) Now, we don't see that much in our culture unless it's in sports these days where some guys will beat their chest in self-aggrandizement. This is the opposite of that. (laughs) This is a Jewish expression of anguish and remorse. And he's beating his chest as if he knows that it is It is from his heart that his sin is coming. 
That's where all sin comes. Right? As R.C. Sproul once said, we're, we're not just sinners because we sin. No, we sin because we are sinners. It's coming from the heart. It's striking his chest, knowing that his sin is coming from his very heart and that he needs a new heart. <clears throat> and then notice what he asks for in his prayer. God, have mercy on me. Now, this is fascinating because there is a normal, there's a, there's a Greek word for mercy that is used in normal circumstances. This is not that. This is not that word. This is not the normal Greek word that is used for mercy. This is a word that sometimes is translated as propitiation, which means he's, he's saying, God, turn your wrath away from me. God, atone for my sin. Turn your wrath away from me. God, I recognize I deserve nothing but your righteous wrath. But I'm asking you to have mercy and turn, turn your wrath away from me. Now, this is fascinating. But in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, this same word, halasterion, is used to describe the mercy seat which was in the temple where this parable is set. It was in the Holy of Holies. It was on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. And once a year, the high priest would go in and he would sprinkle the blood of a sacrifice on the mercy seat and plead with God to turn his wrath away from himself as a sinner and the sins of the, the people. But of course, the blood of those animal sacrifices could not, could not really atone for sin or really turn away the wrath of God. All they could do was point, point toward a sacrifice that could do that and would do that one day. It's the sacrifice that the writer of Hebrews talks about. In Hebrews chapter two and verse 17, the writer of Hebrews says this about Jesus. Therefore, he had to be like his brothers and sisters in every way so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest in matters pertaining to God to make atonement, propitiation for the sins of the people. So how can a holy, righteous God have mercy on sinners like you and me? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Notice also here in his prayer, he says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. But in the original, there's a definite article there. It's literally, God have mercy on me, the sinner. So what does he mean by that? <clears throat> Is he saying here that he's the worst sinner? I used to think that. Um, in studying this week and kind of reading some other scholars on this, I've become more persuaded here that the emphasis here in the prayer is that what he's, what he's saying here is that, that God, the problem is me. In other words, there's no comparison to other people here whatsoever. Lord, I'm the sinner. I'm the sinner. You see, when the Spirit truly convicts you of your sin, you're not thinking about the sins of others. 
you're thinking about your sin. You're convicted of your own sin. Lord, I'm the sinner. Two prayers. And then we see two results. Two results in verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you, this one went down to his house justified rather than the other because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. To be justified means to be in a state of acceptance before God. To be declared righteous by God. But how can God do that? This man's a sinner, we're all sinners. How can a holy, righteous God declare guilty sinners to be not guilty but righteous? How does he do that and maintain his own moral integrity, his own righteousness? And the answer to that is that God became a man who lived the perfect life, the perfectly righteous life that we could never live and then died the death we should have died on the cross. And when you trust in Jesus, the merits of his perfect life, the merits of his atoning death for you on the cross are applied to your account. When you are united to Christ by faith, when you turn to Jesus in repentance and faith and trust him and hurl yourself on his mercy, then you were united to all that he is in his righteousness. You're clothed in his righteousness. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says that he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, it is from him that you are in Christ Jesus who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. You give all that you are for all that he is. What about the Pharisee? You know, the, the tax collector goes home in a state of acceptance before God. The Pharisee goes home in a state of of self-deception. You know, it's bad enough to be lost. But, but what's even worse is to be lost and not know you're lost. That's the Pharisee. He goes home thinking that he's justified, and he's not. He's in need of God's grace. He's a sinner in need of God's grace and God's mercy, but he doesn't recognize that. So how do, we, how do we avoid that self-deception? You say, do I look within? Do I become more introspective and look within at the quality of my faith? No, ultimately you look outward. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. You're not going by your feelings, you're not going by, you look to Christ, look outward, look to Christ, look to his cross where he died for your sins, look to the empty tomb where he rose, look to Jesus and live, turn to him 
Trust in him. Hurl yourself on his mercy. Humble yourself and acknowledge your own sin that you are deserving of nothing but the righteous wrath of God. If we got what we deserve, we would all get hell. You humble yourself and acknowledge that. And you say, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I thank you for giving your son who died for my sins and who rose from the dead. And right now I turn to Jesus and trust in him. I rest completely in his finished work. And for believers, may God deliver us from a spirit of pride and self-righteousness. All that we are, we've been given by the grace of God. Let's pray together. Maybe you're here this morning or maybe watching a stream And you're not certain that you know Christ as your Savior. Friend, turn to Jesus. Trust in him. Hurl yourself on his mercy. Say, Lord, I'm a sinner. I know I deserve nothing but your righteous wrath against my sin. But I believe that you gave your son who died for my sins on the cross, who rose from the dead. And Lord Jesus, right now, I come to you and I receive you as my Savior, my King, my Lord. I give all that I am for all that you are. Christians, may we humble ourselves before God. May we be convicted of our own sins first. May the Spirit of God humble us so that our first awareness of our own flaws, our own shortcomings, our own sins, our own need for the grace of God. And then may we go forth into a world that needs Christ as one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And so, Lord, we pray for your spirit to do a work within our hearts. Lord, I pray for anyone who, who doesn't know Christ as Savior and Lord and King. Lord, would you, would you supernaturally humble hearts? May people see their need for Jesus and turn to him and trust him. Lord, for believers, we have to constantly battle pride in our lives. Lord, would you humble us by your, your, your grace, by the power of your spirit. Lord, would you give us, a, would you give us an attitude of, of humility? And Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you that by your grace, because of the work of Christ, that we've been forgiven that we have been adopted as your own sons and daughters and that you accept us. You love us and accept us now based not on our performance, which is always imperfect, 
but based on the performance of Christ on our behalf, which is completely perfect and completely righteous. We thank you for the blood of Jesus and we rest in nothing else. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12, to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.